From member-supported CPR News, this is Purplish, a show about Colorado's democracy. I'm Sam Brash. Realizing how exhausted I am. Realizing how what? How exhausted I am. Oh, dude, I'm sure you're, like, completely, completely spent. Yeah. There's no way you- okay, so last Friday, the Colorado legislative session ended, and after four months of frantic work, state lawmakers were finally able to come up for air, including this one. Just start with your name. Oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so my name is Julie Gonzalez, and I am the state senator uh, for North, West, and Downtown Denver. Gonzalez is a progressive Democrat. This is my first legislative session. Um, I was and I wanted to talk to her because earlier in the year, she'd been through an experience that I think says a lot about the session. See, Democrats had full control of the state capitol this year for the first time since 2014. But that doesn't mean every Democrat got what they wanted even when they all mostly agreed on the issues. But that's fine. This year, process, the interpersonal drama of lawmaking, often eclipsed policy. Um, It is so much more complicated than the schoolhouse rock version of, you know, I'm just a bill. I'm just a bill. Yes, I'm only a bill. And I'm sitting here on Capitol Hill. And I learned that in some ways the hard way. maybe the best example of that was an effort to abolish the death penalty. Gonzalez co-sponsored the bill with other Democrats who decided to really fast-track the legislation. The bill was introduced on one day. The following day, there was a press conference. And the third day, there was um, a committee hearing, right? And that felt very compressed, particularly for um, the families of victims one of whom works just a few desks away from Gonzalez. Members, I stand before you not only as a senator, but I stand before you as a crime victim. This is Democratic State Senator Rhonda Fields. And two of the three men now on death row in Colorado, they murdered her son and his fiancée. Back in March, on the Senate floor, Fields blasted her colleagues, saying they were moving forward on the death penalty issue way too quickly. When we think about the magnitude of abolishing the death penalty, surely, surely there should be enough time to ensure a thorough and comprehensive debate. And Fields' words had an effect. The bill stalled for weeks as Democrats argued behind the scenes before it got to the Senate floor. You know, I had been working on a speech about why we needed to pass the bill for weeks. I'd like to begin by... I'd like to begin this conversation... It came to a point where we were trying to, you know, count our votes to pass the bill out of the state Senate. And there were four colleagues of mine who had such deep concerns around the process that they said, I don't want to take a vote on this bill. I could ask you to cast your vote publicly, to reject this irrevocably cruel, unusual, and ghastly practice. (sighs) Um, 
And it was only like that morning that I had to go and change it to, this is why I'm, I'm pulling the bill. I ask that this bill be laid over because I believe wholeheartedly that the way in which we treat each other through this process is as important as the policy itself. So when this bill comes back next session, there will be nothing left to hide behind except this abhorrent, terrible practice. I think that there are always lessons in loss. The way in which I'm going to be a lawmaker is to value um, and really listen to uh, my colleagues. Um, I know that we'll do this right next year. And this is just one of many dramatic moments from the session. This episode, a recap of the last four months and what it all means now that it's over. Okay, to help me do that, I'm joined by CPR's public affairs editor, Megan Verlee. Hey. And CPR's public affairs reporter, Ben Tuberkland. Hey, Sam. Hey, okay, so I wanted to start uh, with that story of Julie Gonzalez and the death penalty because I, I, got, I think it got at this, you know, bigger thing that we were all wondering about, right? You know, were Democrats going to get everything they wanted and was it going to be as bad uh, as Republicans worried it would be? So, Benta, I was wondering if you could start that out and just rewind us back to the beginning of the session and talk about how these two parties were sort of framing the debates to come. Like, what did we show up thinking about at the beginning of the year? Definitely two different narratives, depending upon which party you're in. Democrats felt a very big mandate to come in and enact a big, bold agenda, as they called it. They won every statewide race, took control of the legislature, had the governor's office. And even before the session began, Republicans were vocal and concerned about what they feared would be a Democratic overreach and saying, you know, yeah, you did win, but there's still a lot of Republicans in the state. We won our seats, too. We have our own constituents. And so that was the dynamic going in. Like, why was overreach a word we just heard over and over and over again? It seems sort of, like, strangely consistent. I think because it's been an effective attack word in Colorado. Colorado voters, even though they went very, very blue in this last November, have tended to like to feel pretty moderate. And so I think if you're a party that can cast the other party as, and this is another phrase that you hear a lot, too extreme for Colorado, Mm -hmm. you're going to do well at the ballot box. (laughs) Um, yeah. So but Democrats, like you said, were saying, hey, we won. We ran up these huge uh, margins, uh, especially in state Senate races. We have this mandate. Do they spend their political capital in the ways you guys expected? You know, I think other than what we just heard about not getting a death penalty repeal through, there were a lot of issues that had been out there for a while that they did really move on, like oil and gas reform. So oil and gas reform being, you know, that they passed these rules that really changed how oil and gas is regulated in the state. And it also gave uh, new power to to local government. So that, that stood out to you guys as a really big issue. Yes, it's something Democrats have been trying to, I guess, if in their perspective, fix for years, try to have more oversight over oil and gas industry. It's been top of mind for a lot of Democrats and the Speaker of the House, the Senate Majority Leader, plenty of them said, look, we ran on this issue specifically. And so they they definitely felt 
a mandate from constituents. I mean, the other thing we saw early uh, in the session was was Democrats really go all in for a red flag law, right? That uh, would allow judges to order firearms removed from someone who's been deemed a threat uh, either to themselves or others. And, and that does seem like a, a big campaign delivery for Democrats. They were able to get that done. It was a top priority. We also had a, a incoming lawmaker, Tom Sullivan, a Democrat whose son was killed in the Aurora Theater shooting. And he amplified it as well with his personal story. And I think that was very powerful in the building. What's interesting is this has split law enforcement, but the original bill actually came to Democrats via law enforcement through the Douglas County Sheriff because one of his deputies was killed by a mentally ill man. And so they see it as a way to you know, prevent fatal tragedies where other folks see it as this gun grab. So I think it's going to be something we'll continually cover and I think it's going to cast a long shadow. Right, because a number of sheriffs, they they refuse to to carry it out. What's going to happen there, Megan? I don't think we know. I, I think the only thing we can predict is a lot of litigation. There's already one lawsuit against it based on sort of the process around how it was passed. I assume that if that doesn't move forward, there'll be lawsuits challenging its constitutionality. One thing I was very interested in with the red flag bill is – how um, sort of different the the passage of it felt to the last round of gun control measures that Democrats passed in 2013. From you guys, I didn't hear sort of the off-mic angst that I think Democrats might have had passing stuff the last time around. They seem to really feel like this is a policy that's passed in a lot of other states. We want it here, and we are not going to worry too much about what happens next. Bente, you've you've been um, at at the Capitol for years. When it comes to, you know, the speed of the session, that was something we heard from Julie Gonzalez, that the death penalty rollout just happened really fast. There was a press conference, there was a hearing, and it all happened within, you know, days of each other, just really compressed. Uh, did we see that on other bills this session? And, and did that stand out to you, Benta? It did, especially with the death penalty. I was covering that and trying to ask on a daily, hourly basis, when is this going to be introduced? When is the hearing? And then was really shocked that it, it was that fast. That was around the same time the oil and gas, you know, the biggest overall in state history, huge, huge piece of legislation. It was dropped on a Friday night and the hearing was Tuesday. And I understood why Democrats were doing that. It's less time for the opposition to mobilize. They didn't want to leave that oil and gas bill out there for weeks and put more pressure on potential wavering senators and have it fail in that chamber. And that really raised fairness concerns, though, because the one thing our process guarantees, Sam, you did a whole earlier episode of Purplish <laughs> on this, is a hearing in where the public can come and weigh in on a bill. And if you give the public 24, 48 hours to know that they need to take a day off from work to come and talk about a piece of legislation, a lot of them can't make it. And that had a lot of repercussions. Yes. It did. So so let's talk about that because I feel like there's almost, you know, Act 1 and Act 2 of the legislative session. And a lot of that was divided up by when Republicans really started to use, you know, every card they could play to, to slow down the Democrats. Ben, to just, just talk us through one more time, like, what happened? Well, it happened in response to the oil and gas bill and also death penalty at the same time. And Republicans started using a provision that was put in our state constitution when we first became a state and a lot of lawmakers couldn't actually read. And you can ask for a bill to be read at length. That's why it, it exists is because some lawmakers couldn't read? True. Yeah, not everyone wow. was literate. I, so. <laughs> I love Colorado history. Right? <laughs> <laughs> and so... Things got very interesting when Republicans asked for a 2,000-page bill to be read at length. 
that would have taken about a week, meant no other Senate committee hearings, no floor debate, and really ground the chamber to a halt. Right. And so we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to talk about how these Republican tactics change the tone and the course of the session. I'm Nathaniel Miner from CPR News. A recent attack and other credible threats to Denver area schools were frightening, but no longer surprising. And that's in part because of the lasting legacy of events at Columbine High School 20 years ago. The shootings at Columbine changed the nation, and many people are still grappling with it. You knew that it had now transcended income, class, race, everything, that we were spiraling into some sort of a culture of gun violence in school that really bothered me. Our full interview with former President Bill Clinton about Columbine and how it still affects him is available now. Look for the Since Columbine podcast from Colorado Public Radio, wherever you get your podcasts. Search for Since Columbine. CPR supporting members make digital content like this possible. Learn more at CPR.org. You're back with Purplish, a show about Colorado's democracy. I'm Sam Brash. Okay, we're recapping the 2019 legislative session. And Bente, you were uh, reminding us about this moment where Republicans started to ask bills uh, to be read at length. How did that change things at the Capitol? Significantly, uh, the Democratic Senate President Leroy Garcia, to speed things along, set up a bank of five computers to read different pages of the bill at like kind of warp speed. And then in return, Republicans sued him in Denver District Court for violating the Constitution. They ended up winning. It did change the tone. It changed how people were communicating with each other. It did give Republicans a lot more leverage because they had this incredible power. They didn't necessarily have the votes, but they could bring their voices to the table more. Uh, thank you, Mr. Chair. I also move House Bill 1172 and ask that it be read at length. Mr. Minority Leader. Thank you, Mr. President. Uh, I object to the motion and ask that the journal for Monday be read at length. Member of the Uniform Law Commission, I believe this is a bill, the contents of which everyone should know of and be apprised of prior to voting on it. So I re respectfully request that Senate Bill 99 be read at length. It's interesting how much we kept coming back to that moment in further coverage of the session because it did um, it did set up everything that came after. I mean, my favorite thing that came out of all of that was at one point the Republican Senate communications director made a set of bumper stickers with a uh, Republican uh, senator on it. And it said, you know, that's a nice bill you have there. It'd be a shame if someone asked for it to be read at length. Which I think just sort of like I love that. I yeah, because we we have gotten some feedback. Uh, I think a lot of reporters have gotten some feedback about like you know this is you guys are reporting on these uh, tactics that Republicans are using as as obstructionist tactics. The thing is, if you ask Republicans about it, they say yeah, that's exactly what they were trying to do. Not necessarily be obstructionist for the sake of obstructing, but at least make their voices heard, represent their constituents, and stop Democrats from passing policies they disagreed with. And that's the role of the minority party, whether it's a Republican or a Democrat. Which means that we probably have seen the dawn of a new tool that will be used possibly every session. So a lot a lot to unpack there, but let's just let's just put down the politics for a second as as much fun as it is and just 
remind people uh, what might actually have happened this session that's going to matter in their lives because a lot of a lot of really big policies did make it. Megan, like which I, I think I know what you're going to say, but like which policy do you think is going to have the most immediate effect for people who aren't like us living? at or near the Capitol every day. Well, full disclosure, this is the one that will have an effect on people who are exactly like me, which is that the state is now picking up the tab for full-day kindergarten. And I'm the mother of a current kindergartner. I have a son who will be in kindergarten in a couple of years. And for the last nine months, I've been, you know, sending a, a, a check to DPS every month. And it is not a small check. So this is I, tuition you're paying. Exactly. Sorry. Okay. Yeah. So the previously the state covered about uh, covered half day kindergarten. And if a district wants to offer full day, they either charge tuition or they move money from over from other programs. So now with the state picking up the, the whole tab and this starts in the fall, it is coming fast. Uh, districts have the money they were putting into full day kindergarten. They can spend on other things, art and music teachers, counselors, or a lot more um, pre-K slots. And I will tell you in a couple of years when my second kiddo gets to, to kindergarten, I'm definitely going to notice that. So this is all that money like going to a college savings account or are you going to do something more fun with it? I'm, I'm going to like Mexico for six months. Right on. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, yeah, and this was Governor Polis's top priority. He talked about it on the campaign trail during his first legislative speech as governor at the beginning of the session. Uh, it was quite a feat, I think, to get that through. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, l- l- OK, let's talk about Governor Polis because brand new governor uh, comes in. At, I'm amazed we've gotten this far without talking about. I him, know he's, he's just this huge giant that's looming over the whole session. And I, and I think we should talk about like where we saw uh, his influence. Well, I think full day kindergarten is one. I, mm-hmm. I don't think that would have gone through without him and without it being his top priority. Another measure that was controversial didn't ultimately end up passing had to do with increasing Colorado's vaccination rates. Right. Um, we've got measles outbreaks across the country. So this issue is really top of mind for a lot of folks. And Colorado has the lowest kindergarten vaccination rate for measles, mumps, and rubella. A lot of health advocates want to raise that. So they had a provision to make people turn in forms to a health office. The idea was that might be a little bit more cumbersome. And Polis opposed that provision. Um, He also opposed stronger tactics some Democrats wanted to do as well. So they spent months negotiating on that. Eventually, it really didn't have the time to get through the Senate. It would have taken down a bunch of other bills with it because Republicans opposed it. And I think, you know, Polis had a huge role in that. I think we go into a session and I think we're often looking for what a governor will champion. But boy, it is so much more interesting, especially when the governor's party is also in power to look at what they oppose. And in addition to uh, the vaccination bill, there was a, a bill that would have made Colorado a lot less friendly to federal immigration enforcement. It would have restricted how local sheriffs could have worked with ICE. Um, it would have created some new protections for undocumented immigrants. And Polis stopped that bill pretty much in its tracks in a way that um, made immigration advocates very angry. You know, the Latino community was there for Polis during the election. And I think a lot of them came out of the session feeling like he did not return that support. Definitely. And the, I think one issue, if we're talking about, you know, the things that Democrats uh, didn't 
didn't get that they may have wanted is paid family leave, right? So this is a plan that would have guaranteed 12 weeks of uh, paid time off to take care of a sick relative or uh, a newborn child um, or, you know, yourself if, if you're recovering from a medical condition. And once you take that time, you can apply to the state and get uh, part of your wages reimbursed. So this would have been a, a you know vast new benefit that Coloradans could enjoy if they wanted to. But... You know, the the like lamest sounding death ever that only happens in legis- legislative stories. It was turned into a study. Like, Megan, wh- what did you make of that? Because you'd covered all the earlier iterations of, of Democrats trying to pass paid family leave. Well, I'll be actually interested to hear what Benta has to say. But I, I did think from my far distant, haven't actually talked to a real human being who's not you two in a long time uh, <laughs> perspective, assume that this one was going to pass. It was one of the... Uh, like marquee uh, agenda items for Democrats when they didn't have double majorities, when they didn't control both chambers. And so it did seem like a gimme. I was surprised. I wasn't surprised that it had a lot of opposition. The business community has always been concerned about this in terms of implementation and uh, cost and the fact that then they have to guarantee 12 weeks off to to people for these uh, reasons. Um, I was surprised, though, that in the face of that, it um, it foundered as much as it did. Yeah, I think a lot of Democrats weren't totally on board, ultimately, including Governor Jared Polis. I think they support the underlying concept, and business community says they do too, but the concern was whether it will be financially sustainable. The big sticking point is how many people would take advantage of this benefit. Would there be enough money coming in to make it viable? It is turned into a study, but the the sponsors of the bill say it's still on track to be implemented as if the original bill had passed. Okay, so just to start wrapping things up, guys, I wonder, like, we talked... Never, let's go forever. Let's go forever (laughs) and ever. I'm sure people want that so badly. But uh, what about most undercover bills of the session? Like, what kind of flew under the radar? A lot of very significant criminal justice reform uh, bills went through. And they weren't sort of run as a coherent package necessarily, which made them a little harder to spot. A lot of them had bipartisan support, which is great, but also means that a bill often, you know, fewer people shouting... is, it doesn't get quite the same attention. But, um, you know, some big reforms on uh, bail and uh, trying to keep not have people in jail just because they can't pay small bail amounts and um, changing the uh, drug possession from a felony to a misdemeanor so people aren't going to prison just for drug possession crimes. Those are some really significant reforms that I think it was harder to find the narrative around because they weren't at the center of a bunch of shouting. Another issue that didn't get covered a lot, we, we did cover the fact that a bill to make Denver the first place in the country to have a safe injection site right. was not going to be introduced. But some other opioid legislation dealing with that crisis did pass. Um, one of the bills would make it easier if you're in a crisis and coming out of a, an emergency room to have people to coordinate where you could go to continue your recovery versus here's a piece of paper, here's some places, figure it out yourself. Mm. Now, that's not going to get big headlines, but from from some of the sponsors, they say that's a key piece of as part of a much larger puzzle to try to help people get on the path to recovery. I want to wrap up here, and I think one way to do it is that as journalists, but also politicians do this all the time, uh, we have the tendency to use superlatives whenever we're describing a legislative session. You know, most productive, most decisive. Um, most divided. Most divided, yeah. Like, nobody ever says most fun, but, you know, that's fine. Uh, given your, like, long tenure at the Capitol, was it remarkable in any of those ways? Do any of those superlatives apply? 
you know, a, a lot of people across the spectrum from lobbyists, lawmakers, staffers, whoever, they say it was the toughest session they've ever experienced. The toughest. Uh, last session was also historic. We had lawmaker expelled from office, a lot of workplace sexual harassment allegations that clouded the whole session. So mm-hmm. that was very, very tense. That cloud was still there. And then you had Democrats in control of everything. And it just it was kind of hard on top of hard. And it, it just all fed into each other. So many late nights. Uh, you know, I don't want to make it seem like they didn't compromise on things. They got the budget done, some big things. It never went off the rails. You know, they held it together. They did what they're constitutionally required to do. But it was pretty brutal. Brutal, yeah. And I could see it, you know, kind of in your eyes and Sam's eyes as the session went on. But I think at the same time, it is remarkable that Democrats did do a lot of their big agenda items. They did the governor's biggest item, full day kindergarten. They did some of their long term uh, desires like overhauling oil and gas regulation and uh, passing the, the red flag gun law. And as we just talked about, I think they probably set themselves up to be very productive next session if that's what they want to do in the teeth of an election, because they've had these fights this year. They're going to go in knowing kind of their own uh, political geography a little bit better. Yeah. And I kind of felt sort of good about everyone saying it was a brutal session. Like, I definitely felt that. I felt that it was a lot of long nights and some really tough issues and some really confusing topics. But I mean, this is what these guys are supposed to do, right? They show up for four months every year and they try to figure it out the best they can. And yeah, they took on a lot of big stuff this year. And I, I, I think they get, like you said, they got a lot done. Too. Now you both should get a vacation. <laughs> now we both get to go home. All right. Well, thank you guys all for coming in, uh, and hopefully we can do this again soon. Thanks. All right, that's it for this month's episode. Purplish is a production of member-supported Colorado Public Radio. Learn more about becoming a member and join today at CPR.org. Audio production for this episode by Rebecca Romberg. Original music by Brad Turner and Daniel Mesher. Lots of help, obviously, from Megan Verlee and Benta Berkland. As for what's next for this podcast, now that the legislative session is over, we're in the midst of figuring that out. At any rate, keep an eye on your feed, and thanks so much for listening. <laughs>